Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor, and I am flying solo today. I am without my typical co-hosts, Jim Townsend or Chris and Nietzsche. Um, but although I am alone, I'm joined by not one, not two, but three highly esteemed guests for today's episode. I'm joined by three ambassadors to the US, Ambassador Strunk, Ambassador Hachula, and Ambassador Rejabo, and I hopefully pronounced those okay. Um, but I wanna say, so not only um, do these three ambassadors share a common thread of currently serving in the United States, but all three of them have incredibly deep Russia expertise and have served their respective countries in Moscow. And so we realized that we had this incredible brain trust really here with us in Washington, DC, um, all ambassadors with deep and practical knowledge working on the Russia file. And so we thought this would be a really uh, excellent episode, something highly of high interest to our Brussels sprouts listeners to get them all together and just have a conversation about what's happening in Russia um, and also in uh, US, uh, Russia, uh, Russia European affairs. Um, so I'll briefly introduce the three of them and then we'll get right to it. But we're joined by Ambassador Gaston Strunk, who is the ambassador of Luxembourg to the United States. Uh, and he came, he began his tour in September 2019. And he's previously served as Secretary General at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, a Ministry of Foreign and European Affairs of Luxembourg. Uh, we also have Ambassador Miko Hachala, um, who became Ambassador of Finland to the United States just in September 2020. Uh, and he served as Ambassador of Finland to Russia from 2016 to 2020. So really uh, just hot off his tour to Moscow. And then finally, we have Ambassador Jean-Arthur Ar Arthur Rejabo, who became Ambassador uh, of the Kingdom of Belgium to the United States also in September 2020. Uh, and he has previously served as ambassador to Russia, to Armenia, Belarus, and Uzbekistan. So again, what an incredible brain trust of expertise on Russia. I'm so excited for this conversation. Um, but maybe, so I, I wanna talk a little bit about kind of what's happening inside Russia, and then also, uh, like, as I said, uh, Europe-Russia affairs. But maybe we can start with Russian domestic politics. And Ambassador Hachala, since you are just um, so recently out of Moscow, I wonder if you can kind of just start by giving us your update and your take on what's happening inside Russia, kind of how you would characterize uh, the state of Russia's domestic politics. Uh, thank you, Andrea. Thanks for uh, inviting me to this uh, discussion. So uh, you mentioned that we are a brain trust. Uh, uh, now when I've spent like six months outside Russia, I'm, I'm getting a feeling that I'm becoming a brain rust. Uh, so uh, I'm not so sure how updated I'm always, uh, how updated I'm always, but, uh, but perhaps my take would be that uh, uh, what, we, what we have seen in, in recent months, I think I see it mainly as a continuation of those long-term trends that started already uh, many years ago uh, when Putin actually came back. So uh, I don't see much sort of unexpected uh, development. So many of those things, uh, what we have seen, I mean, it's, it's not really a, a major surprise for me. What we see uh, is a system which is uh, basically having a lot of difficulties in, in reforming the economy. I think it, that the economic side is, is basically what we are going to see is more of the same. And I think politically uh, what we have been seeing for the past years and uh, what I believe we are going to see uh, increasingly before the Duma elections uh, this year is, is more control. 
So uh, I think these trends will continue, and and, and of course, in concrete um, issues like like how they uh, treat the opposition, how they treat uh, Mr. Navalny, of course, uh, then you see uh, a lot of actions that uh, merit, uh, uh, of course, uh, reaction also also from from the EU and uh, also from the US. So, so I think it's a long-term trend uh, which is getting a. Uh, um, I would say a bit more uh, critical, a bit more intense, uh, uh, and I think the reasons are the pandemic and, and the incoming uh, elections. So it's it's a it's a it's a sensitive time, uh, and and I think it's going to be like that for uh, many months to come. Great, Ambassador Stronker, Ambassador Rejavo, do you want to kind of jump in and and I guess maybe adding the Navalny piece, um, kind of the the protests that that spurred and the reaction from the West, you know. Is this something that you think the regime overreacted to? And does it tell us something about the, maybe the paranoia um, that may be growing in the Kremlin? Or, I mean, how, how, where, where do you put these more, most recent protests? And you know, do, you, do you think it represents a significant challenge to stability in Russia? Or is this something that the regime is gonna fairly easily uh, ride, ride through? Uh, thank you, Andrea, and thank you for, for having me today. Uh, yes, uh, uh, the, the Navani case uh, takes a, a dimension beyond what we have seen before. During my time in, in Moscow from 2008 to 2011, we had uh, Kasparov being the, the leader of the opposition. Uh, you definitely cannot compare Kasparov and, and Navalny. Uh, but what you see, and that is a little bit comparable, is that uh, this Russian overreaction, uh, it, it's, it's a kind of uh, Soviet inherited in a certain sense. Uh, another, another element that I wanted to mention regarding Navalny, we look at the Navalny case from the outside. Have a look at it from the inside. Uh, the way Navalny is treated is a message to the Russian population, to any uh, opponent, to any uh, critics against uh, Putin and the regime. Uh, the, the Russians, of course, uh, are very strong in symbolics, huh? and they always have been. And uh, the way they treat to Navalny for, for them uh, is more important in a domestic perspective than in a perspective from, from Europe or from the United States. Yeah, I think it's such an important point. And even with, say, the Skripal poisoning, right, I feel like there was a lot of symbolism that was also an important signal about the fate of traitors. Um, and so that there was a, a large kind of domestic component to that, too. But Ambassador Rejabo, um, you know, the, the support for Navalny domestically is still quite low. Um, I think, you know, trust was what something around 5%. Do you think that this is is something um, that has legs under it, or do you, is this something again, like kind of thinking through that question of what this represents longer term? Is this something that the the regime can easily uh, ride through, and that that we're not so concerned about domestic stability or regime change really in Russia at this juncture? Well, uh, actually, I would say that the way Navalny is treated means that he is considered to be a danger. Uh, by the people in the Kremlin. Even Sov, as you mentioned, his credibility among um, average voters is not that high. And in a fair and free election, Putin would probably easily win. But they don't want to take chances. So it means that they're afraid of the potential 
of uh, Navalny to canalize uh, opposition. And opposition there is. And in my view, uh, of course, there's the issue of limitation to uh, freedom of expression. But mainly, the, the Russian people are concerned about the standards of living because they've been decreasing for quite a few years. And that's a big difference between the first uh, period of Putin before 2008. He was uh, at the head of a booming economy. And so people could accept some authoritarian uh, limitations because the standards of living were improving rapidly. You know, say, if you compare even today with the, the, the average uh, standard of living 20 years ago, it's, uh, it has been multiplied by four. So it, it's quite an impressive uh, factor. But of course, it is mainly due to energy revenues. Well, it has, since his return in 2012, uh, Putin has presided uh, 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 the best, a stagnant economy. And in terms of purchasing power, the Russian people feel uh, that it is actually decreasing. Uh, and uh, Navalny sensed that there is an opportunity. Um, he is very strong on denouncing corruption. And corruption is much less acceptable to the people when their own uh, life uh, is actually not going that well. On the foreign policy front, kind of thinking, you know, it seems to me that that so certainly since 2014, there's been a more confrontational, brazen, brazen, assertive approach coming out of the Kremlin. But even just in the last several months, um, with Putin's treatment of Burrell, um, with even the solar winds cyber uh, attack in the United States, um, it it feels to me again, even though it. That, that, that trend has been present since 2014, there does feel something that is even more aggressive or even more confrontational or just kind of a disregard for even maintaining the semblance of productive relations, um, especially with Europe. And so I wonder, you know, where, where do you all see that coming from? What, what? what do you think? And so I guess in terms of Russia's foreign policy trajectory, where do you see that going? And what do you think is driving that? Well, I think as Mr. Biden and Lincoln are currently saying here in the US, uh, every foreign policy uh, is implanted in domestic policy. And we also have to look at that way in terms of Russia. So Gaston already alluded to the fact that there are parliamentary elections in September. Uh, so it's not an entirely free election system, but sometimes people from the oppositions do win elections, even at governor level. Um, and so the Kremlin might sense that there is a real danger uh, of not being enough powerful. And uh, it, it is very sensitive in Russia because um, power does not rest so much in institutions as the impression of power. So if the Kremlin is seen as losing ground, it might accelerate um, uh, a decrease in legitimacy. And I think that's the real fear in the Kremlin. And that's also how I look at all these episodes, uh, be it uh, solar winds or the attempt to uh, influence elections in the U.S. in 2016, it just keep out. Uh, that's the message. Uh, we, we want to take care of our own domestic affairs and you are not allowed to intervene. That's the message I read. So one interesting thing, and we'll continue this, but just with a slight twist I, in, in terms of Russia painting itself into a corner. So it was not just the Burrell visit. It's not just that they're in a difficult, you know, continuing a place of difficulty in relations with the United States. But, you know, I saw even today, for example, that Russia didn't invite Afghanistan, uh, didn't invite India to talks in Moscow on Afghanistan. And so is there, you know, there's the question now about is there potentially some friction in that historically close relationship? So where is Russia headed in its foreign policy? Like what, what is, you know, what is this 
trajectory? What is the projection? Where where do they go if they're alienating a lot of their um, foreign policy uh, relationships? Andrea, I, I'm not so sure if there are sort of feeling that they are alienating anyone. So I, I don't see much of a cha change here. But perhaps to continue what Sean Arthur said, I also believe that uh, for the moment, uh, foreign policy is, is really steadily guided by the domestic uh, considerations. But uh, it's also, of course, uh, quite a useful uh, kind of an excuse for them because now they can say that uh, don't lecture us, don't try to influence us because this is such an important issue, the domestic domestic politics. So it's a kind of, um, we have to also take a critical look toward it. But uh, in foreign policy, I think they are, um, I mean, one shouldn't read too much to these kind of um, sort of separate episodes. I, I think they are pretty confident uh, what they are doing. And, and I think they have a kind of, um, on the contrary, I would feel that uh, they will be even putting more emphasis on the uh, their partners and, and, and uh, perceived allies. Uh, so I don't uh, believe that there is a kind of a trajectory that leads to uh, necessarily something totally different, uh, uh, at least after the elections. Ambassador Strong. Yes, uh, thank you. I think we, we should not overweight the, the love of uh, Borel, uh, Snap. Uh, I think they had good discussions that we got from, from the internal briefings and the press conference went wrong regarding that specific element. Uh, yes, foreign policies related to, to, to domestic policy. Uh, looking at the Russian policy, I, I sometimes uh, I, I sometimes think that they, they, they like this place in the corner and that they like to be victims, to be the victims. Uh, and, uh, and they come from a defensive position and then uh, they try to, to, to make their point. Uh, um, it's, uh, it's not easy to formulate Russian foreign policy. Uh, they are very frustrated in a certain sense. So 10 years ago, when I was in Moscow, we had this hope for an opening for modernization. And there were elements of foreign policy in that. You remember the, the Putin proposal for a larger Euro-Asiatic uh, Russian alliance uh, from, from West in Brittany to, to, to Vladivostok. I, I, it's difficult to make a judgment if this kind of proposal was sincere or not. But the fact that nobody seriously took it up and took the matter forward created a kind of uh, frustration in the Russian foreign policy and, uh, and that's why they cherish the place in the corner. Coming to Russia's relations with Europe, I mean, Russia has you know, long been a relatively divisive issue in Europe. And so with Macron most recently pushing for a more accommodating approach saying Russia's too large to push around and it can't be ignored. Germany, on the other hand, kind of has, has often prioritized economics and that's been underscored by Nord Stream 2. And I think even, even Spain and Italy um, have, have favored softer approaches. And then that all contrasts quite sharply with where uh, Eastern Europeans are. And so I, I guess my, my question though, is you do hear some people talking about the fact that with the Navalny case and with the Burrell trip uh, to Moscow, that Europe is, is converging, that there's more common ground and more consensus on, on how to uh, 
address and engage Russia. Do you think that's true, or do you think that, or it, or is that really not the case, and that these kind of historical divisions on Russia are still just as as important um, and and wide and salient as they've always been? I, I think it is the case. Uh, as a result of, of this trip, uh, the EU is more united. Um, we we are taking sanctions uh, uh, on people uh, around the Navalny case. Uh, but still, um, first, I would not say that Macron was necessarily accommodating. Macron was looking for a way to engage in a serious dialogue with the hope that it would produce something, uh, something positive, but not with the hope of a, a rosy relationship. It's going to be a difficult relationship anyway. Whereas uh, our, our member states from uh, the East, like Poland or the Baltics, they put a heavy emphasis on history because for them also it's recent history. And we have to understand and integrate their feelings. Um, but all of us, we do have uh, economic relationship with, with Russia. And if you take the EU as a whole, uh, our trade is 10 times the amount of trade uh, with the US. So for all of us, actually, it's quite a significant issue and not just in, in energy terms. Yes, if you, if you if, sorry, Miko. Yes, if you remember the the uh, uh, the five principles guiding the EU policies towards Russia from 2016, uh, I think they they are still very valid today. Uh, the implementation of the Minsk Agreement. Uh, uh, I think we we have to take the matter forward. It's not easy to strengthen the relations with the US Eastern partners and other neighbors and to increase their resilience, that would be important, strengthening our resilience when it comes to energy security, hybrid threats or strategic communication. Uh, and, to, and Macron is right, uh, we need your selective engagement with Russia on issues of, uh, of interests of the EU. And uh, last but not least, uh, we need to engage in people-to-people -people contacts and support Russian uh, civil society. Now, these five principles, they date from 2016. I think we, we, we have to pick them up, to have a look at them again, and to, to, put, uh, to put flesh on the bones, uh, to come with concrete action uh, related to the five uh, principles. But they are valid today, as they were in 2016. I think uh, the the will meet later this month. Um, I think right to to talk a little bit about the block strategy on Russia. Um, what do you think will be discussed there? I mean, will will the is the starting point these five principles, and there'll be a dialogue and conversation about how to update those and and do as as Ambassador Strunk said, putting some meat on the bones and fleshing them out. Or what what do you think will be discussed? Andrea, I, I believe that uh, we have had the same discussion in the EU for the past five years, uh, basically what uh, Jean-Arthur and, and, and Gaston already described. So uh, I think majority of us, uh, we do understand that uh, we need uh, selective engagement. On the other hand, we have uh, these problems and concerns which we have to react to. So I think it's, it's, it's going to be a discussion about what is the right balance uh, between uh, engaging Russia and, and also uh, and confronting Russia and, and sort of protecting uh, Europe's values. So I, I think this discussion is going to continue. I think what uh, Navalny and, and Borrell uh, episodes uh, uh, make is that uh, it's easier, uh, I think, um, to, to have an agreement on these restrictive measures. And I think the EU has been really united on these issues. Uh, 
throughout the whole uh, crisis past uh, seven years. So I think this is going to continue. But the issue of how to engage in which issues, uh, who's going to do that, I think this is going to stay. From our perspective, um, Finland uh, having more common border uh, with Russia than, than, by the way, all NATO countries uh, combined. Uh, I mean, having a meaningful dialogue, having functioning relationship, it's a kind of a, you need to have them uh, for very practical reasons. Uh, so definitely uh, we will be favoring a selective engagement while being principled and, and, and even tough uh, on the sanctions. But I think um, from my perspective, um, the problem also for the EU is that uh, if there is no EU level engagement with the Russians, actually it plays into the hands of the Russians because it helps them to only deal uh, with the EU countries on a bilateral basis. And I don't think it's, uh, it's in our best interest to do that. So that's why we Finland has been always uh, supporting uh, a selective, uh, meaningful, of course, um, engagement starting from the EU's own interests. I would uh, be glad to see uh, more EU engagement with Russia in the issues like uh, trade. We have a lot of interest uh, to defend. And then uh, climate and environment, because climate is also something that uh, I believe uh, it is already being taken more seriously by the, by the Putin administration. And I'm sure it will be taken much more seriously by the future generations, uh, which will be ruling Russia at some point. So I, I think we have to sort of uh, play the game that we have uh, today. Uh, but at the same time, I think the Europe EU should be a kind of a strategic actor uh, capable of also sort of thinking a bit further ahead. I know it's going to be difficult to balance these uh, different dimensions, but I think we should be able to do it. So the, the really, really great points. And I think you know, it largely... Um, latches up with where the Biden administration is too on kind of getting the calibration right between confrontation and pushing back on Russia, but with but, but a very genuine interest in selective engagement. I, I wonder though, like I, whether or not on the European side, there would, there is more emphasis placed on the selective engagement piece of it. And I guess where I wanted to go and you partially answered my question, Ambassador, in terms of what, what the ground for selective engagement is, because it's clearly narrowing. Um, and, you know, it, you know, people will say it takes two to tango. And unfortunately, it does seem like there isn't a lot of openness um, and interest in engagement, even from Moscow's side. So I don't know, hearing from Ambassador Strong, Ambassador Rejabo, as you think about where there could be that kind of um, engagement, what are the, what are, where, where do you think uh, the ground is most ripe or, or ready for that? Well, you, you know, there has always been engagement, if only because it's also in the Russian interest. <clears throat> and I give you a clear, a clear example. When it comes to terrorism, uh, we, we do have common issues. Uh, of course, we do not have exactly the same policy when it comes to data privacy, etc. But when it comes to um, uh, serious police operations, we do fully cooperate with the Russians. And, and it works. Um, also, uh, we have a, a sizable Chechen community in Belgium. Uh, some of these elements are partly criminals, partly terrorists, and we do have a cooperation in order to make sure that these people going back and forth between the two countries, that we keep an eye on them. So that's a, uh, an example. Another example where I think it's possible to move with Russia is climate change. Um, Russia is clearly affected by climate change, uh, does not have the same um, consequence as we do because it has been de-industrialized in the last 30 years. So in order to reach 
the, the, the numbers of the Paris Agreement, they do not need to make a big uh, leap, uh, but it is an issue in the high north in Russia. So, and this, these are just two examples. Also, we have a long common border and we have an interest uh, at keeping this, this border more or less uh, stable, especially when it comes to transnational crime. The other thing that was on the table too was kind of the people to people ties. And that's obviously something that will be very important to the Biden administration appealing, reaching out to Russians, uh, demonstrating to them, you know, in many ways that the Putin regime is taking Russia in a direction that doesn't serve the interests of a majority of Russians. But the, 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 the closing space, the increasing restrictions, cracking down on civil society, cracking down on the media environment, you know, more and more talk that Russia might ban YouTube, which has become an important platform um, that, that, that many Russians use and watch. Uh, how, how, you know, how, do we, how, how can we think about reaching out and engaging Russians as that space is closing? I know Europe, this is some, you know, there's a lot happening on the European side, I think, in terms of those people to people contacts. But as we're thinking as a transatlantic community about how to do that and how to do it effectively, uh, you know, what, what are some of the things that, that you all think of or any lessons learned um, on the European side for uh, I, you know, ideas and approaches that have worked? Yes, Andrew. Andrew at least uh, from our perspective, uh, Finland is a country that before uh, pandemic, uh, we gave, uh, we issued more visas than, than any other EU country did. So we, uh, like 2019, more than eight eight hundred thousand, uh, eight hundred thousand. So it's a, it's a huge, huge figures, and Finland is one among the sort of most popular uh, destinations for the Russians. So uh, at least uh, my uh, sort of takeaway would be that uh, we have to keep the border open, and we have to sort of uh, stay open to the Russians, uh, so that they can travel, they can study, uh, they can uh, there there can be a kind of an exchange at the sort of people-to-people uh, -people, uh, level. I think we are well e equipped to do that. And then I think there's a small, uh, very important uh, detail here. I think uh, if there has been a kind of a pretty systemic crackdown on, on a number of things, how the civil society can function, there has not been a crackdown on, on tourism in Russia. Uh, on the contrary, I think the, the last two years have been a kind of a liberalization of the visa policies by the Russian Federation. There are going to be a number of reasons for this, but I, I think they, this is something that they have not touched yet, uh, at least. And I, I think the, the direction is, is actually the opposite. So, so I think this is a kind of an opportunity that we should uh, use. Uh, obviously, um, countries which are next to, which are located next to Russia, have a special position on this. But I think it it uh, actually covers the whole Europe. So I think this would be something we should uh, take a look at. Uh, and then uh, students, I think we have a great interest in in, in sort of uh, having uh, more Russian students studying in Europe so that they can see uh, our realities and, and they can sort of, uh, uh, they can sort of uh, have a first-hand experience what Europe uh, means. So I think this is a kind of a long-term investment we should be, uh, we should be making. Yes, I, I agree with uh, Miko. Uh, every time when I met in those days in, in Moscow and beyond uh, uh, Russians and mainly the young people, they were excited to, to talk about Europe. They were looking forward to, to travel to Europe and to the United States. They, they were impressed by the uh, lifestyle. They, 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 they wanted to have what we have. Uh, 
And so I think uh, focusing on the young, focusing on students, focusing on academia would be good. And we could do that in, in a kind of uh, enlarged framework of Erasmus+. Plus. Erasmus is a big success, so why not extending it in, in a certain extent to, uh, to, to our neighborhood, including, including Russia? So, but if you agree, I would uh, come back to the selective engagement because climate change and environment threats were mentioned. I, I remember already in 2014 when I traveled to the to, to the Russian north, uh, the local population they were used to permafrost in in, in the, during the summertime. Uh, and when I came in 2000, uh, that was 2011, I think 10 already the permafrost was not stable anymore and people were buying plastic boots and dinghies and instead of moving with their with their bikes or their their motorcycles say they had dinghies and plastic boots and and that was so visible so there must be an interest on the russian side to engage on climate change on, on environmental threats uh, but also on global health challenges and the pandemic without without any doubt uh, Sputnik, after the criticism we have, seems to be a big success and, and a very good alternative or complementary vaccine to, 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 what, to what we have. Why not cooperate in digitalization? I remember the, the Russian mathematicians, they were geniuses uh, and they have a lot to, to contribute in digitalization when it comes to uh, mathematical algorithms, for example. Why not to developing together hydrogen uh, capacities that would be a, a, a very good uh, a very good subject uh, too and then uh, i always have to be back to to cyber security also looking at the news from from today um, of course we, we we have an asymmetric uh, uh, relationship huh? and uh, the russians are very smart in using their cyber war capabilities in a quite aggressive way. They don't spend a lot of money and they make uh, a lot of damage. On, on the other side, uh, their society is much more resilient, but because they are by far less digitalized than we are in the West and in the United States. So, so that means that we have to engage them in cybersecurity yeah? and we, we have to bring them to the table. And uh, I think that even some elements of uh, of the past, like confidence and security building measures could be useful when we would apply them to, to talks related to cybersecurity, but we cannot let it go. Of course, I agree with her. Those who have the capabilities, they must retaliate and that has to be done after solar winds. Uh, but at a certain time, uh, we need to have them at the table on cybersecurity. Yeah, I think it's such an important point on cyber, and I think certainly in the United States with the Biden administration, especially uh, on the back of solar winds, but that, that, that cyber will be a key focus, um, but also kind of putting it in this broader framework of not just solar winds, but this broader pattern of malign cyber behavior and attacks on our health infrastructure. Um, but how do you see this moving forward? Because it is, you know, is this something that you would in your mind, does this fit under a strategic stability umbrella and we attack or we start thinking about some of the rules of the road under the umbrella of, of, of strategic stability? Or is this something that we should be addressing head on 
with the Russians? And if that's the case, you know, what does it look, what's the first step? Do we as a transatlantic community, the United States and Europe first need to agree on what some of the rules of the road are first before taking those to Russia? Or how, how, would, you know, how would you sequence this problem? Because I agree, uh, this is probably one of the areas that I think is also most ripe for that engagement. In my mind, the solar winds was, you know, certainly Russia didn't want to be caught in what they were doing, but it was also, I don't know if they minded that they were, it was a way to demonstrate their high level of sophistication and in a way almost to compel the United States to the table. I think that's a lot of the lessons that they've learned as you use force or demonstrate your capabilities and only then will the United States take them seriously and come to the table. So again, just highlighting what you said, Ambassador, I do think this is such a an important area and a fruitful one for that engagement. But as, how do we think about sequencing? How would we start to make progress on this? What, what does that look like? I, I would just uh, offer a personal opinion. I think the first thing we have to do is uh, to be less vulnerable. Um, first, uh, is it really a good idea to digitalize everything? Uh, we should always have backup solutions. Uh, second, um, we, we should increase also the resilience on our side. And I think, for example, the Estonians were at the forefront when their, their state structure was uh, attacked in 2007 and the state was paralyzed for, for a few hours, if not a few days. I think that we should learn from these lessons so as to show to the Russian first that we are aware, but second, that we're also able to resist. Um, but there's also, I think, a, a very important element in the, the Russian psychology. Uh, because the message coming from them is, uh, don't intervene in Russia, it's our business. And for the most part, I analyze um, their willingness to, to do uh, uh, negative things on our side as, as two things. First, they want to be considered as a, as a big power. It, it's hugely psychological in, in Russia. They want to be respected as a huge power. Uh, but second, also, their, their reasoning is, oh, you do that to me. You, you, you're supporting human rights defenders in my country. Okay, then I, am, I, will, I will show to you that I'm also able to produce problems on your side because you, you're giving me problem, I will give you problem. So there is also uh, really an issue of trust and understanding. And as one Russian colleague put it to me, misperception on both sides. Others, Ambassador, how, do, how would we get this kind of dialogue off the ground? Because I agree on a lot of issues about this mutual non-interference. There's very little ground, I think, for those types of discussions. So that, you know, we, we might have to start, you know, I forget which one of you mentioned, confidence building measures or other things, kind of starting with some of those more discreet uh, issues before moving into other discussions. I don't know if any thoughts on how we would get, get this going. Andrea, I think it's a kind of a, I of course fully agree with what uh, John Arthur said that uh, we should uh, sort of focus on how do we defend ourselves. But I think um, I would be tempted to say on a private basis that's your idea of, of, of the Europeans and the US of getting together and sort of uh, finding a kind of a common ground on these issues. We know that there are a lot of uh, pretty divided, dividing uh, points here, but uh, I think that would be useful because what we know for the future is that uh, now we have 5G. Uh, in Finland, we are already uh, getting ready for 6G, meaning that uh, we will have absolutely everything connected. So uh, this is the trend uh, for the future. So uh, I think these issues, we're, we're gonna, they will gonna come up uh, uh, soon and they will uh, get even more dramatic. So I think there's a 
a huge sort of strategic and even imperative for us uh, to get together on these issues and, and, and try to sort of uh, define uh, common rules of the ground. How, how do we play this? And then how do we try to sort of um, influence uh, the overall uh, global standards? So I, I think it's going to be one of the biggest topics for us for the next 10 years. And I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of that. Yeah. Okay. So we talked uh, about people-to-people -people ties, and we've talked about the selective engagement, but the this really important basket still of, you know, the confrontation or efforts to kind of push back, deter Russian behavior. I mean, I think one of the most important and, and the hardest question is kind of what other tools other than sanctions do we really have at our disposal? And I don't, I don't know if any of us are going to come up with any brilliant ideas right on our podcast, but I don't know if you have a sense from on the European side, if there are other tools that Europe is thinking about um, and willing to use in order to try to uh, shape, structure Russian choices. Yes, that, that's very difficult. On, on, on sanctions, of course, we we have used uh, the visa bans and the asset freezes and the, the next list of uh, Russian uh, personalities is, is ready. I, I don't know how efficient they are. Uh, listening to my Russian friends, uh, uh, I hear that if somebody is targeted by, or he's expecting to be targeted by visa bans and asset freezes, he has done his work at home before he is on the list. Huh? Uh, and uh, everything is ready and he's not affected by the traveling ban and he definitely will not be affected by asset freezes. We have seen a number of cases where, where Russian oligarchs uh, channeled their assets back home uh, long before the uh, asset freeze uh, hit them. Huh? Uh, I always found that the sanction against entity were much, entities, economic entities were much more efficient uh, embargo on arms, uh, dual use, for example. But the one that I found particularly efficient, that was in 2014, 2015, uh, the embargo on, on equipment for oil industry. Uh, you know that the Russians don't have the technology for exploiting uh, uh, their, uh, their oil and petrol and gas uh, reserves, uh, not notably in the Arctic and, uh, you know, the famous Stockman field, and they don't have the technology to exploit that fully. And they need US technology, they need Norwegian technology, for example, and, and, and having a ban on technology related to oil industry, I think uh, this, uh, this hit them very hard, maybe not on the short term, but on the long term, developing their possibilities to exploit uh, the reserves they have uh, is very, very, very damaging. Beyond sanctions, uh, there's maybe not much to say. I think we should be much tougher on, on uh, disinformation from the Russian side. Huh? And uh, to, be, to counter uh, this disinformation with an adopted and uh, much more targeted communication policy when it comes also to the information of the Russian public. That must be possible. But it has been on the agenda for some time. But there is a lot of uh, uh, maneuver still to be left, a lot of space to be, to, to be, uh, to be explored. Huh? Yeah, really good, good points. I don't know. Uh, it, it is one of the kind of really difficult questions, I think. And, and often we run out of good ideas. But I think you're, 
uh, focus Ambassador Strunk on the resilience. It's come up a couple of times in the cyber domain, obviously in our in our own democracies. The resilience piece is really important, and that is obviously another kind of emphasis of the Biden administration, recognizing that there's little opportunity to really substantively shape Russia's behavior and calculus. And so we have to do the, the hard work in our own democracies to try to mit at least mitigate some of the tactics. I want to maybe ask, oh, yeah, Ambassador, go ahead. Uh, yeah, just uh, sort of a few points on this. Uh, I think, uh, of course, Gaston was right. It's, uh, the sanctions have a limited uh, impact. I think we need, need them uh, because they're a political signal. Uh, of course, they raise, they cause some cause for certain actions, so I think they are needed, but I think everybody is quite realistic. Uh, it's, it's, it cannot really uh, sort of alter or, or fundamentally change Russia's behavior. I think this is uh, this is not to be expected. Uh, perhaps I would uh, disagree a bit with uh, Gaston on the on the oil industry uh, and gas industry because uh, what we understand is that. Uh, uh, this situation was there uh, like a few years ago, but uh, I think the, the world never stays the same. So uh, they are getting alternative sources of technology for oil and gas. Uh, I think um, overall, um, Russia should not be really uh, compared with uh, the Soviet Union that was back in the 80s, because uh, it is also a more resilient country for a number of reasons. One reason is that it is a market economy. So it does mean that uh, Moscow Politburo doesn't have to convene on a weekly basis to decide what the Moscow bakeries will bake next week. So, I mean, market takes care of most of the economic decisions. Secondly, uh, I think when, when the Soviet Union was, uh, I think, the biggest importer of wheat uh, globally, now they are the biggest exporter of wheat. So um, the food uh, issue is there. Uh, then uh, thirdly, I think they, as I already said, um, they have uh, an alternative source of technology, one of them being China, which was, which was not there back in the 80s. So I think they have, um, this big picture uh, should also be kept, kept in mind. I think it was uh, President Obama who, uh, while being a president, he once said in one of his speeches that uh, uh, we should be careful that uh, if we only possess a hammer, then we start to see every problem as a nail. So um, I, I think with the, I, I think your question, Andrea, is, is absolutely perfect. That uh, um, we know that uh, with hammer you cannot uh, solve all these issues, uh, and we have to. Be, I think we have to get more creative in, in finding ways to to improve our resilience, uh, use uh, sanctions in a, in a in a meaningful way if they are warranted. But uh, but frankly, um, I also see that. Uh, we need a, a fun, functioning, clear-eyed diplomacy uh, and also um, discussion with them to understand how do they see the, the situation. Because otherwise, um, I, I don't think any single tool will uh, will do the trick uh, um, in the future. Yeah, really important points. And maybe, you know, what you, I don't want to go down the Russia-China rabbit hole because as I'll put in a plug that we had put out a report in January. So I feel I could talk um, for a very long time about that issue. Maybe we'll save it for another time. But on the China question, just to get a sense from, from the Europeans' perspective, is there a concern that the United States is overlooking or underestimating the Russia challenge? Um, given all of the focus on China, it really has been China, China, China. We saw in the interim strategic guidance that you know, it does seem like Russia is a fairly distant second tier um, in relations or in terms of where we're prioritizing our 
uh, national security challenges. Is there a concern in Europe that the, the United States is not as attentive to this or over overestimating the, the challenge? So I guess the question is, how has recent statements and some of these key documents and foreign policy speeches that have come out that have, have put some focus on China, how is that received on the European side? I think that this concern does not exist yet, but it could come. Uh, because I just saw a piece in the Washington Post on Sunday saying that the main threat to NATO comes from China. Uh, there is something we Europeans, we cannot agree on. <clears throat> Uh, and also, especially that the threat coming from China and from Russia is uh, definitely different. Uh, China is an economic powerhouse, Russia is not. It's a, just an energy powerhouse. It, it's, it's big enough, but it's a totally different issue. The, the, the Russian economy is not, uh, you know, taking off. Uh, it's stagnating. Um, but also, we, we risk encroachment on our territory from Russia. That's, we do not risk from China. So uh, it, basically, it's a different issue. We also have um, Russian-speaking uh, minorities in some EU member states. We do not have Chinese-speaking minorities. So the issues are different. I, I, I don't fear that the, uh, the United States will just ignore Russia. But maybe they might put so much emphasis on China that they might just think that Russia is less important. And that would be a, a very um, a negative signal because the Russians want to be taken seriously. And uh, if you neglect them, they will come back to haunt you. Any other final last words? And then maybe I'll wrap up, but I don't know any, any other additional perspectives on kind of how some of this early, early words, actions have been perceived in Europe. Andrea, sort of a few points on this. Uh, I think what uh, Jean-Arthur said is, is correct. Uh, there is an increased interest. And in, uh, this is definitely one of those issues that the European countries and especially those who are in the Eastern Europe, they are really looking carefully and try to understand uh, what does it mean when China is, is number one priority and, and then uh, Russia or something else is, is second. second. Uh, so uh, I think the message will be uh, quite loud and clear from uh, all of the countries of, of Europe almost that uh, uh, this issue should not be forgotten. We know that the, the security order of Europe is uh, I don't think uh, it's still uh, sort of, uh, we haven't been able to, to fix that. And it's open. So there's a lot of unfinished business in Europe, uh, which, uh, as John Arthur said, uh, if left sort of unattended, uh, I think there's a risk that uh, it comes, comes back and bites you. And it will do it uh, the very moment you least want it to happen. So I think uh, kind of a joint effort of, of keeping it up and, and, and trying to have a meaningful um, response and engagement with Russians, I think it's an imperative, uh, even if you focus heavily on China. Ambassador Strong, any last words? I mean, I, the, the, the thing that makes me wonder, and again, this could take us down another rabbit hole, but maybe final question to you, Ambassador Strong, is kind of how optimistic you are um, about the potential for transatlantic cooperation on Russia or do you think some of these issues like the strategic autonomy debate and other things are gonna make it harder for us to coordinate to address these shared challenges? I would not be a diplomat if I was not optimistic and I'm, I'm optimistic on, on these issues. The challenge is to, to find the, the, the right balance within this dual track paradigm of resilience and dialogue. Huh? So increase resilience, uh, stay prepared, uh, and be ready and at the same time 
uh, have this dialogue and engage the Russians on this on the uh, themes that uh, are important to us. And I think that is a, a good track. Uh, the Europeans have to closely cooperate with the uh, with the allies, United States and Canada, on this issue, and to to form. Uh, uh, an, an alliance in this uh, dialogue with with Russia, and uh, sooner or later, I'm convinced uh, uh, this dialogue will produce results that will be beneficial for for the West and for Russia. All right. Well, that was a wonderful note to end on. So, uh, you know, I want to thank all of you for doing this and taking the time. I do think we have our work cut out for us. Um, it is a, still a very significant challenge that we will have to navigate, but I think we've talked about a number of areas, whether it's on the selective engagement front, on cyber, on climate, um, the people-to-people -people ties, the confrontation, and trying to jointly develop new ideas for how to, how to do this. I mean, it'll all work so much better if we're doing this in a kind of coordinated and cohesive way between the United States and Europe. And, you know, unfortunately, some of the, that muscle memory atrophied over the last four years. Um, but hopefully this is an opportunity with the Biden administration in um, who is really committed to working with allies to, to take steps on all of these different fronts. So um, I think this was an excellent beginning of a roadmap for that. And again, just thank you um, all three for, for joining us uh, for this and hopefully we can do it again. There are so many other directions we could have gone on, Russia, China and all sorts of things. So maybe we'll do it again, but for now, uh, thanks for taking the time.